you're happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning, can you say amen? amen? I want to encourage you to continue to pray for our team that's in Mexico. They are ministering to the Taumaras. Thank you, Maura. The Taumaras. In the mountains of Mexico above Chihuahua. And uh, did a little research on that tribe. Did you know that they are expert runners? Like the average one of them runs like 500 miles a month or something like that. And, the, and actually, there was a record. It's a world record. One of them ran 435 miles in 48 hours. 400, that's an average of nine miles an hour for 48 hours. So who knows? I, they probably stopped and took rest. So that means they were, they were running. Like, they were running. So that's a trip. So I, I'm praying for our team because I, sh- I looked at some, foot, some footage of what happens in, in, in that area. Man, people are just like, where we have lanes for cars, they got people running. <laughs> Like, you get everywhere by running. So uh, pray for our team. (laughs) Got to do, like, insanity or something before going to minister there. It's a powerful thing. I'm happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning, and and we're going to begin a new series this morning. And the series is entitled, um, get that PowerPoint up there, please. The series is entitled, The True Meaning of Fellowship. The true, there we go. The true meaning of fellowship. The true meaning of fellowship. And today is part one. And the question that we're going to ask today is how true fellowship is established. How is true fellowship established? The true meaning of fellowship. And let's open with a word of prayer. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus that you would speak sovereignly by the power of your word. That you would give us wisdom and revelation and understanding that you would settle in on our hearts today. We worship you. We give you praise. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Now, I want to say that this is going to be a mini-part series, a several-part series. I'm I'm still in, in the process of developing it, so I don't know how long it's going to go. But what I will say is this, that there are many different aspects to what fellowship is. And we've talked a lot about fellowship in this house uh, but I've done a deeper study on it over the last week, and I've discovered some things that I think are pretty amazing and that I'm going to begin to share these things today and lay these things out. Uh, but we're, we're going to build a house here. We're laying a foundation. But I'll just begin by saying this, that all week long as I've been in prayer and as I've been seeking the face of God, that as I come deeper and deeper into the Spirit, I just sense the Spirit longing. The Spirit of God is longing and crying out to build real fellowship among us. The church is not a club. The church is a fellowship. The church is not simply a Christian organization. It is a fellowship. And to the extent that we experience fellowship, we are the church. And to the extent that we do not experience fellowship, we are not the church. I want to start with Acts chapter 2, verse 42. These are the core values of the early church. If we look at the early church and ask ourselves, what are the early church's core values? We see them Here in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and Acts 2.42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Notice there's a comma after the word fellowship. 
It's because even though there are four elements here, there's two couplets. Two and two. The apostles' teaching and fellowship go together. And actually in the NKJV, which I think is a better translation, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Meaning it was the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship of the apostles. And then in the breaking of bread and prayer. The first two go together and the second two go together. And so what we can see is that the four core values of the early church were first instruction and then fellowship and then worship and then prayer. When the scripture talks about the breaking of bread, it's talking about the, the body and blood of the Lord, what we call communion. We just celebrated it a few moments ago at the end of worship. The taking of, they, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It wasn't talking about they devoted themselves to eating Big Macs. It's not they devoted themselves to having food. And that, you know, we, that has been so misinterpreted. That is, this scripture right here is the root of the prominent Christian practice of calling anything that we have food, any event that has food in it, we call it fellowship. Right? And that's why whenever there's an a eating place in the church, if we build a big sanctuary, we build also a fellowship hall. And in the fellowship hall, that's where we lay out the food because when we, and we call it the breaking of bread. When it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, it's not talking about getting your grub on. It's talking about partaking of the body and blood of the Lord, the act of communion, which the early church called the Eucharist, the giving of thanks. And that was the core content of their worship. It means that they devoted themselves to worshiping God with all of their heart, mind, and soul. And then they devoted themselves to prayer. So each of these actually is a different level of fellowship. What I'm going to argue is that fellowship is the component that brings all four of these together. First of all, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Implicitly, it is the fellowship that is created by their joint devotion to the apostles' teaching. It is their devotion to the apostles' teaching that brings them into fellowship with one another and with the apostles. And then thirdly, they're devoted to the breaking of prayer, which is worship, which the breaking of bread, which is worship. That is, it's the communion, as Paul says, of the body and blood of the Lord. And then fourthly, they're devoted to prayer, which is communion with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is fellowship with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it starts with the apostles' teaching, which brings them into fellowship with each other and with the apostles and with God. And based on that foundation, they then go into celebrating the Eucharist, which solidifies their fellowship with God and with each other, and then to prayer. Okay? So these are the core values of the early church. And what I'm arguing is that fellowship is at the center of it. Koinonia, fellowship, is at the, at the center of it. And I want to ask the question, what is fellowship when we use this term fellowship what is it we said it's not chips and salsa right that's the famous quotation around here we use that all the time fellowship is not chips and salsa it's not cookies and punch it's not even eggs and chorizo i wrote on my facebook page last night why do they call them thin mints when they make you fat when you eat them that is the worst kind of deception because it plays with my emotions See, when you tell me they're thin mints, I feel safe. 
But it is a great marketing technique, though. I'm going to make a brand of ice cream called Lean Cream. <laughs> kind of cake called Skinny Cake. Actually, that's the concept behind the muffin. You know what the muffin is? The muffin is an excuse to eat cake for breakfast. That's what it is. Call it a muffin. It's not cake. It's a muffin. And now I can eat cake for breakfast. <laughs> that's what a muffin is. It's an excessive. That's deception. So if koinonia is not chips and salsa, if it's not food, what is it? Well, the word koinonia, the New Testament term koinonia, which is fellowship. I've done a study on it this week. And I looked at every verse in the New Testament that uses the term in any form. And it appears in several different forms. Maybe what I'll do is I'll make that list available to you so you can see every verse in the New Testament that uses this term. And it uses it in several forms. There's a noun form. There's a verb form. There's a participle form. uh, There's an aorist form. There's all of these different forms of the word koinonia. And I looked at all of the different passages, and what I found is that there are three basic connotations to the term koinonia. It means three basic things. And from passage to passage, it refers to different ones of these connotations of the term. First and foremost, koinonia is the act of partaking, that is, receiving. Koinonia begins with the act of partaking. When you receive something, when you receive, the church is first and foremost a koinonia or a fellowship, and it becomes so when you begin to receive. That is, you can actually go to the church, have your name on the list, have your butt in the seat, but not be a part of the fellowship because you refuse to receive what God is giving there. When your heart and mind is closed, when you sit through the worship and don't receive from the Spirit of God, when you sit through the message and don't receive the Word of the Lord, you've locked yourself out of the fellowship. You say, well, I've been in this church 15 years. Yes, but you have just excluded yourself from the fellowship by refusing to receive what the Spirit of God is releasing in the church. Now, I grew up in a home where my mama would cook, and most of the time I loved what my mother cooked. But there were some times when I did not like what she cooked. And I'd say, Mom, I don't like that. And she'd say, well, son, I'm sorry that you don't like that. But this is what we are eating. And by God, you're going to eat it. (laughs) And I remember many a night sitting at the table till 10 o'clock at night. Because my mama would say, you're not leaving the table till you eat that. She was jealous to see to it that I participated in the fellowship that was our family. She wasn't going to allow the family to eat one thing but make an exception for one member of the family because he doesn't like that particular thing. Now, certain things, you know, I I still have conversations with my mother about, like, who in their right mind wants to eat liver? Come on, somebody. You know that stuff is demonic. That's the satanic part of the body. It's fit only to be destroyed. You throw that out. You know, you give me the... The prime rib, I'll eat it. But the liver, come on. It's like eating kidneys. But it didn't matter. If my mom ate liver, we were eating liver. You hearing me? Now what tends to happen is that we like to pick and choose when we come to the house of God. 
We like to sit at the table and pick and choose what we eat. And in doing so, we don't realize that we exclude ourselves from the fellowship because there's some stuff set on the table that we just will not eat. But the fellowship begins when we make a decision to be partakers to be partakers. And when you join a church, you're making a decision to be a partaker of what the spirit of God is offering there. You're making a decision that says, I'm going to partake. I am going to have an open heart and an open mind. I am going to receive. I come into the house of God with my heart and mind open saying, Lord, I'm here to receive. Lord, I'm here to receive. Lord, I'm here to receive. You know, when I speak to my pastor so often, he says things that I don't want to hear. And I go through seasons where he says more and more of those things that I don't want to hear, but I don't have a choice whether to hear them or not. I have to open my heart and say, Lord, I receive. Lord, I receive. Why? Because I must be an example to the flock to whom I minister. I got to eat my vegetables too, like everybody else. And what happens in some churches is that when the children of the house don't want to eat their vegetables, the father of the house is tempted not to serve them anymore. But I'm telling you today that I don't care if you like it or not. I'm going to serve you the vegetables because you need to eat it. And if you don't like it, it doesn't matter. It's going to make you strong. Amen. So it's first of all, the act of partaking or receiving in Romans chapter 15, 27. Paul says that the Gentiles are partakers of the spiritual things of the Jews. He says they have partaken of the spiritual things of the Jews. That is, they have received, and he's speaking of the Jewish Christians coming from Jerusalem and preaching the gospel to the Macedonian and Achaian churches. And we're going to talk about them in a little bit. But he says they're partakers. They are receivers of those spiritual things. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, Peter says you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. He says when you suffer... Don't worry about it. In fact, you should rejoice in it because you are partakers of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. But if you partake of his suffering, you'll also partake of his resurrection and glory. So fellowship begins with partaking, with receiving. But it, is, it does not end there. Actually, it is not even established in the act of receiving. There must be reciprocity. Fellowship is a two-way street. What if you went to lunch with somebody who always expected you to pay? How long would that fellowship last? (laughs) You have lunch once and the bill comes and they pretend they didn't see it. They just keep talking. And after a while, you just get, you know, kind of tired of waiting. So you grab the bill and just pay for it. The next time you eat, they just sit there when the bill comes again, pretend they didn't see it. After the third lunch, you make a decision. I ain't having no more lunches with this person. I can't afford it. Why? Because there's no reciprocity. This person just expects me to pay every time. There's no reciprocity there. There must be reciprocity. And if you are here today and there's somebody in your life that has bought you lunch three times or more and you never bought them lunch, I want you to go home today and give them a call and say, I'm going to buy you lunch this week. Say, I can't afford to buy them lunch. Then make them a ham sandwich or something. I'll never forget, my mother taught me this. I was a Bible college student, and we had a buddy who had money coming out the yin-yang. That doesn't make any sense, but I don't know why people even say that, but okay. This brother had money. He bought, first thing he did, he was a very successful businessman who quit everything and went to Bible college. 
But by that time, he had enough money to pay for Bible college, and he went out and bought himself a Jaguar, and, and uh, he was taking us all out to lavish lunches and lavish meals and concerts and, and just spending money on us like crazy. When I first met him, he walked up to me and handed me a $50 bill. There you go. I said, what's this for? He said, you two go out and have lunch. Have a good time. And he walked away. And I, thought, I said, no, man, I don't even know you. I can't take your money. And my buddy said, that's how he rolls. Just, just take it. I said, all right. Went and had lunch. I remember after a couple of weeks of that, I told my mom, I was like, man, this guy, dude, he's taking us to lavish lunches and he's buying us stuff. My mother said, son, you take him out to lunch. Don't you let him pay for you every time. No, mom, he doesn't care. No, 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 son. He does care. He does care. Take him out to lunch. If you can't afford to buy him lunch, bring him here and make him lunch. Go through the kitchen. Invite him here for dinner. Sit him at the table with us and serve him dinner. And don't you dare borrow money from him and not pay it back. That was the best advice my mother could have given me. So I'd say to him, I said, let me take you to lunch this time. And he said, no, 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 I got it. I said, no, 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 no. Let me do it. I'd buy him lunch. But I'd take him to like some Scottish food at like McDonald's. <laughs> you know, you know, some French restaurant. Jacques in the <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, you know, I take him someplace that I could afford. What I didn't realize is that that simple act of reciprocity meant the world to him. And one day after several months of that, he took me out one night and he broke down and cried. He said, you're the only friend I have. So what are you talking about? He said, everyone else takes me for granted. You're the only one who takes me to lunch. And you're the only one who borrowed money from me and paid me back within three days. He said, I never expected to get it back. Everyone else borrows from me. And he started naming people. This person borrowed $2,000 from me. Everyone else takes and takes and takes from me. But nobody gives back. Now, I might have said to him, you set yourself up for this. You act like you bleed money. You know, you act like, you know, money is just like water to you. However, the principle still applies the principle of reciprocity. I don't care how baller like someone appears to be. You better find a way to give back. And you say, well, I can't give back at their level. Nobody expects you to give back at their level. Give back at your level. This, get, this is what I can do. I'm going I'm to do this for you. This is what I can do, but I am going to complete the loop. I am going to give back. And so it is the act of providing that is giving. So you see how these two go together. The act of partaking, which is receiving, and then the act of providing, which is giving. It is giving and receiving. It is mutuality. It is reciprocity. And we see this in Romans 12, 13. When Paul talks about distributing to the needs of the saints, he literally uses the word koinonia there. He says, fellowshipping with the needs of the saints. Fellowshipping with the needs of the saints. Fellowship is when I meet your needs and you meet my needs. When we fellowship with each other's needs. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13, in this passage in which Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about giving, he talks about their liberal sharing, and he uses the word koinonia there for sharing. He says your liberal koinonia, your liberal providing, your liberal giving, this is good because this church had received and received and received and received. But Paul says, finally, now you've learned how to give as well as receive. And now the loop is created. Fellowship is giving and receiving. It is not just receiving and it is not just giving. If you've got relationships in your life where you just give and give and give and give, but don't receive anything, you need to invite those people into fellowship. I'm serious. You need to invite those individuals into fellowship. 
And if you've got people in your life that just give to you, 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 and you don't give anything, then you need to come into fellowship with those individuals. Find a way to give back reciprocity. Why? Because until you give back, the loop is not completed and there's no real fellowship. And this is what happens often in local churches. This is why we press church membership. Because what happens is people come to churches and they sit and they receive 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 and they sit and they receive. receive. People attend churches for years without putting a dollar in the plate, without serving anything, without giving anything back. And they don't realize why they don't feel like they're a part of the fellowship. Because you've received, but you haven't given. It's like the difference between the Sea of Galilee and and the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee... The, the thing that the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea have in common is that both of them are fed by the Jordan River. Do you know that? They have the same source, the Jordan River. The difference is the Sea of Galilee receives from the Jordan River in the north and then pours back into the Jordan River in the south. It receives and then it gives. And so the waters of the Sea of Galilee are fresh. They're full of fish and full of life and Fishermen go there and people ride boats across it. I've been on the Sea of Galilee and rode boats across it and it's wonderful. It's beautiful and it's, it's awesome. I, I stayed in a little, little hotel right on the bank of the Sea of Galilee and we played in the water at night and baptized each other and sang songs and, and took a boat across from Galilee to Tiberias and hang out and hang out in Tiberias. And it was awesome. We had a wonderful time there back in 1995. By the way, we're going to be planning a trip to Israel, the Lord willing, And I'm hoping to do it perhaps in the fall of 2014. As a church, we should take a trip to Israel. And and I want to teach through my story of the Bible course in Israel. From from beginning to end. Anyway, I'm just throwing that out there. That's, you know, many are the plans of a man's heart, but it's the will of the Lord that prevails. So we'll wait to see what the will of the Lord is. But that's the plans of my heart. So I'm just divulging that. And so when you come into fellowship, you complete the loop. And so what, what happens is the Sea of Galilee is alive, but the Dead Sea receives from the Jordan River, and it stops there. There's no outlet from the Dead Sea. So what happens is it just keeps receiving and receiving and receiving and receiving, and it receives so much that it's a dead thing. Nothing can live in it. Do you know there's not one organism that lives in the Dead Sea? Nothing can live in it. Why? There's poison in it? No, there's no poison in the Dead Sea. It's so full of good stuff. But in such a high concentration, I mean, if you take too much vitamin C, it can kill you. Vitamin C is a good thing, right? Yeah, try taking like 100,000 milligrams this morning. It'll kill you. If you don't vomit it up quickly, your body will know that it's poison and get rid of it. Good things in high concentration can kill you. And so how do you see to it that the good stuff you're receiving doesn't kill you? You learn to give back. There's got to be an outlet. There's got to be a receiving and a giving. Now, when you put these two things together, receiving and giving, you, you reach the third level of fellowship, which is the act of participating. That is communion. Participation is mutuality. It's communion. Communion is a simultaneous act of giving and receiving between two parties. The moment I'm giving, you're receiving. And the moment you're giving, I'm receiving. And the moment I'm giving, you're receiving. The moment you're giving. In, you experience this level of fellowship with only a few people. Only a few people that you come into that level of fellowship with. And it, it presupposes mutuality. 
it presupposes that the two of you are dipping out of the same pot. In other words, it's, it's like my wife and I sitting at the table and we're dipping out of the same bowl of soup and feeding one another. What she's tasting is what I'm tasting. What I'm tasting is what she's tasting. But if she's got a bowl of ice cream and I got a bowl of stew, we don't want to share with one another. When she puts it in my mouth, it tastes foreign to what I'm eating. And when I put it in her mouth, it tastes foreign to what she's eating. You ever tried to fellowship with somebody that was just in a different place than you were? And you start talking about what's on your heart, but they can't even, they don't even know what you're talking about. And then they come back with nonsense. You know what I'm talking about? Somebody comes back with nonsense. You're talking about the deep things of God and they just want to participate. So they come up with some nonsense. I was teaching a class one time and, and I was, I was teaching and, I'm, and there was just this flow of wisdom and I'm teaching the deep things. And I kept getting interrupted by this little shallow baby Christian who kept interrupting and wanting to input with nonsense. And in her mind and heart, she thought what she was saying was the deepest stuff. And it was worthy of interrupting the flow that, that was flowing at that time. And so she'd raise her hand and I'd say, yes. And she'd say, yeah, it's like such and such. And you can see everybody in the class going, oh, Lord. I'm thinking, no. No, it's not anything like that. And I say, okay, all right, okay. Anyway, going on. And then a few minutes later, wait a minute. Yeah, because, you know, I was thinking this. I said, you know what? You need to just be quiet right now. I know you want to participate, but you need to participate with your silence right now. You need to receive before you give because you're trying to give out of what you haven't received. There are some conversations that you got no business contributing to. And most people have the wisdom to know that. So Peter goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Jesus is transfigured before them. And all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up and start talking to Jesus. Can I just give you one word of, of, just one word of wisdom? If Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are having a conversation with each other, shut up. Don't say a word. <laughs> Do not try to contribute to that conversation. Hey, Jesus, you know what I was thinking? I think we should build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What do you think? Jesus is thinking, oh, Lord, Peter. And the father came in a cloud and told him to shut up. I mean, when Peter said that, the, all of a sudden a cloud covered the mountain. When God, when the father gets so angry that he shows up in a cloud and tells you to shut up, you know that what you contributed to that conversation was foolishness and nonsense. Peter, you got nothing to contribute to that conversation. You need to hush. You'll be able to speak one day. Yes, but not today. I remember sitting with some of my professors in seminary and listening to them talk to one another, wanting to jump in, but thinking, I better shut up because what I'm going to say is nonsense. I better not say a word here because what I'm going to say is not anywhere near their level. In order to come to the place of communion, you got to be dipping out of the same pot. But what happens when somebody is pouring into your life and you know that what they're giving you is out of a different pot than you're dipping from? You can't have communion with them at their level. So what do you do? Here's what you do. You give to them from your level. In other words, you don't try to pretend that you're someplace where you're not. That's foolishness. Remember the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus and said, Lord, my daughter, she's demon possessed. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Oh, thou son of David, Adonai, son of David. Oh, have mercy. Baruch haba Adonai. She's, she's pretending to speak Hebrew. 
with a pseudo-Hebrew accent. The Bible told her she's a Syrophoenician woman. She probably came wearing a prayer shawl, pretending to be a Jew, pretending to be Hebrew. Oh, thou son of David, have mercy. Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua HaMashiach, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus completely ignores her. You know why? Because when you come to Jesus pretending to be something that you're not, he just puts a cloud over you and he pretends he doesn't see you. Why? Because you're taking him to be a fool. He's sitting there thinking, do you think I don't know who you are? Oh, Yeshua HaMashiach, mercy. And the disciples said, Lord, will you just send her away? And he says, it's not good for me to take the bread that's for the children and give it to the dogs. I used to read that and think, Jesus, you're so mean. Why, could, why would you call this woman a dog? Man, that's messed up. And suddenly she stops, takes off that prayer shawl. It's like Jesus was saying to her, I know who you are. I know you're a Gentile. Stop pretending to be a Jew. I know you're not spiritual. Stop trying to quote Bible verses. You never read the Bible. You don't have two verses to rub together. Quit pretending that you're so spiritual. Wait, I got some revelation. Ain't got no revelation. You need to just hush. She said, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that come from the master's table. And Jesus says, ah. Now you've come to me as you are. Go your way. Your request has been granted. Hear what Jesus was saying? I didn't need you to be a Jew. I didn't need you to have scriptures memorized. I just needed you to come to me as you are. I just needed you to be you. Not to pretend to be somebody else. I just needed you to be you. You can fellowship with anyone at any level as long as you fellowship as you. And not trying to pretend you're them. You hearing me? So communion is the ultimate level. And it's the act of participation. And a couple of prominent places where that word appears in this sense is 1 Corinthians 10, 16. When it speaks of the communion of the body and blood of the Lord. The mutual participation in the body and blood of the Lord. It means that you receive the body and blood of the Lord, which is the sacrifice of his life. At the simultaneous moment, you are surrendering your body, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It's communion in that it's a two-way street. You're receiving from the Lord and releasing to the Lord at the same time. And also in 2 Corinthians 6.14, when Paul says, what communion does light have with darkness? He's talking, he's commanding the Corinthians to come out from among them and be separate, to touch not the unclean thing so that God might receive them. And he says, for what fellowship has light with darkness? He says in the verse prior, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He's speaking to single men and women in the church and saying, stop dating those unbelievers. For what fellowship has light with darkness? Say, oh, she's going to get saved. Then wait till she gets saved. Oh, well, I know he's close to meeting Jesus. Good, then you can wait. Oh, no, I'm going to win him to Christ. That is not biblical, my friend. No, I'm going to help him. He don't need that kind of help. What you're doing is fellowshipping with darkness. You have already compromised yourself in that moment. And now you have opened the door for the darkness to pull you further and further and further in. And by the way, I've just got to say this. I'm going to throw it out there for free. 
Because so many believers talk about fellowshipping with unbelievers and they say, well, you know, Jesus hung out with prostitutes and sinners. Yeah, but after he hung out with them, they weren't prostitutes and sinners anymore. You hang out with them and they're still prostitutes and sinners. That's not the ministry of Jesus. And matter of fact, they haven't come any closer to the light. You've come deeper into the darkness. Jesus hung out with prostitutes and sinners all the time, but he never, ever, ever took another step closer to the darkness. Instead, he always brought those who were in the darkness closer to the light. So listen, you hang out with anyone. I don't care who they are as long as you're bringing them into the light instead of them bringing you into the darkness. Okay, I I threw that out for free, but we got to keep going. So communion is the telos. Communion is is the goal. Communion is actually where we're going. Every act of fellowship has its telos in communion. Communion is the ultimate goal of all forms of fellowship. It starts with a simple act of receiving. It's followed by a simple act of giving. But what we're trying to grow towards is communion. What we're trying to grow towards is mutuality. Okay? But spiritual communion is an intimate exchange of the deep things of the Spirit. When we're talking about spiritual communion and the church is supposed to be a spiritual communion, spiritual communion is an intimate exchange of the deep things of the spirit. That means you've got to have some deep things of the spirit to contribute, right? It implies that both parties have deep things of the spirit to share with each other. But what if you ain't got no deep things of the spirit to share? You only got some shallow things and things of the flesh to share. If all you got is places where you messed up, you ain't got no deep things of the spirit to share. If all you got is your problems, you ain't got no deep things of the spirit to share. But I'm saying to you, that's okay. You can still cultivate fellowship and you can still establish it. But how is it established? I want to draw your attention to Romans chapter 15, verses 26 through 27. Paul is speaking to the Roman church and he relates to them about... The churches in Macedonia and Achaia, he says, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution. There's that word koinonia. They were pleased to make a koinonia, a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. He says that the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, they came together, said, we're going to send some money to Jerusalem for the poor in the churches in Jerusalem. We're going to make a contribution. We are going to make a financial offering to the churches in Jerusalem. He says they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Now, I just want you to stop and read that so you see it's right there in the Bible. (laughs) This isn't my logic or reasoning. This is right there in Scripture. See it? Did you read it? You sure you see it? You're not mad anymore, right? (laughs) They owe it to them. I don't want to owe anybody anything. What do you mean they owe it to them, Paul? For if the Gentiles have shared, there's that word koinonia, partaken, received in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share, there's that word koinonia, give, provide, to share with them their material blessings. Do you see what Paul says? 
The Jerusalem church sent people to preach the gospel in Macedonia and Achaia and thus shared their spiritual things with the Gentiles. The Gentiles received those spiritual things, came to faith in Jesus Christ, received the gift of salvation. And how did they complete the loop and establish fellowship with the Jerusalem church? They sent a financial offering. They couldn't share their own spiritual things with the church in Jerusalem. What are they going to do? You know what? You sent us spiritual things. So we're going to send you our spiritual things. So we gathered all of our idols and all of our pagan practices and we're sending them to you. It's kind of a trade. You, you share your God with us. We'll share our gods with you. No, they just came out of the worship of all of that. So what did they have to give the Jerusalem church? They had a financial offering to give. And Paul says they owed it to them. They received their spiritual things. They owed it to them to bless them, to share with them, to fellowship with them their material things. And it establishes fellowship. Communion is built upon that. Okay? Now let's take it to another level. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 4, 6, and 11. Now for those of you that think I'm cherry picking in this passage, I want you to go home and read. It's supposed to be... No, 1 Corinthians 9. Go home and read the whole passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and see if I'm lying. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and I'll start, I'll preface before we read this. Paul never received an offering from Corinth up to this moment. He administered there for years. Remember, he lived there for 18 months. Never received a dime from them. Worked as a tent maker. We see that in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, that he worked as a tent maker while he was there in Corinth and provided for his own needs and the needs of all his companions. Okay? He never received a dime from them, but he says to them, don't we have the right to food and drink? Meaning, didn't I have the right to expect you to provide for me? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? It's the same logic he used in Romans 15. He says, the Jews in Jerusalem sowed their spiritual things with the Gentile churches. And so they reaped their material things. And Paul says, if I've sown my spiritual things, should I not reap your material things? Look at this. But we did not use this right. He says it's a right, but we didn't use it. We did not use this right. On the contrary, We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. You know what Paul was saying? There were so many financial hangups in the Corinthian church that I refused to even bring up the subject. The Jerusalem church shared their spiritual blessings with the Gentiles by sending messengers to them to preach the gospel. Fellowship between the Gentile churches and the Jerusalem church. Go on to the next slide. And the Jerusalem church was established as the Gentile churches gave back through their financial giving. Apostles share their spiritual things with the churches through their teaching and preaching. And fellowship between those who are taught and those who teach is established as those who are taught give back through their financial giving. Is that not the logic of those two passages of scripture? It's exactly what Paul is saying. He says it explicitly in Galatians chapter 6 verse 6. Let those who are taught share in all good things with he who teaches. Okay? Now, I want to look at a positive example and then we'll come back to to, uh, Corinthians. I'm sorry this teaching is going on so long, but I'm laying a foundation here. 
And so I got to get this out. I promise next week I won't hold you as long. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership. There's that word koinonia in the gospel. From the very first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now flip over to Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 19. We have to ask the question, when he says partnership in the gospel, what is he talking about? Their partnership in the gospel. Look at this. He says, it was good of you to share. There's that word koinonia again. It was good for you to fellowship in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared koinonia with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. He says, I've had fellowship with no other church except you. He says, every other church I gave and gave and gave but didn't receive anything. I worked as a tent maker and provided for myself. And then I worked as a pastor and provided for the church. I shepherded the people, but received nothing in return. But you, you Philippians, he says, I'm I'm always giving thanks for you because of your partnership in the gospel. And he says, you've partnered, you have fellowshiped with my troubles, and you are the only church that has fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for the gift. See, this is why Paul says I never brought it up in in Corinth. Because it seems self-seeking. As if I'm looking for the gift. I never brought it up because they would think I was trying to fleece them. They would think I was trying to manipulate them. I want you to know I'm not looking for the gift. I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. He says, I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will provide for all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And my God. Do you know what Paul is saying? Why doesn't he say, and your God? He says, you've come into fellowship with my God through your fellowship with me. You have completed the loop. When covenant is completed, when when fellowship is completed, it becomes a covenant. And he says, you have made covenant with my God, and now you're going to see how my God works. I I don't know how your God works, but now you're going to see how my God works. My God supplies all of my needs, and now you're going to see he's going to provide for all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's saying, I couldn't take the Corinthian church to this level of blessing. This is the only church he says this to, and it's the only church he calls his partners in the gospel. He says, every other church received but didn't give. And he says, they're they're stuck. But you, you're going to see how my God works. Observations. The Philippian church was the only church Paul referred to as his partners in the gospel. The substance of this partnership in the gospel was their financial giving. The result was Paul's confidence that God would be faithful to complete what he had begun among them and that my God shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, going on to the next slide, there was a problem at Corinth. What's the problem at Corinth? Paul never accepted financial giving from the Corinthian church 
because he was afraid it would hinder the gospel. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12. He says, I'm not going to hinder the gospel over this. It's better that you're saved and you go to heaven. You can still have your financial hangups in heaven. You don't have to get this to get saved. This isn't what it's about. There's a certain level of fellowship we have because we both know Jesus Christ. And we can have that level of fellowship and it's great. He says, I will never hinder the gospel over this money issue. And if, if I sense it's hindering the gospel, I'll back off of it. Say, no, just be saved. Just be saved. I want you to have more. I want you to experience a greater breakthrough in this life. Paul knew that the Corinthians had hangups about financial giving and that their giving would not flow out of freedom, but out of obligation. He knew if he talked about giving in, in the Corinthian church, they were so spiritually immature and had so many hangups about it that it would bring them into bondage and they would give because they felt obligated to. Because they felt it was a requirement. And that would take them out of the realm of faith. Obligation is a form of works orientation and takes us out of the realm of faith and therefore it doesn't please God. Paul knew that if he commanded them to give, they would do it, but they would do it out of obligation and it wouldn't do any good for them or for God or for him. Obligation doesn't please God. This is why Paul opted to provide for himself and his companions through tent making, Acts 18.3. Not because Paul felt he had an entrepreneurial anointing. Not because he just liked making tents. He said very clearly there in 1 Corinthians 9, that's not what he wanted to do. But he did it so that he wouldn't hinder the gospel. You following me? But there was a turnaround. Look at your neighbor say, there was a turnaround. Oh, late in the midnight hour. There was a turnaround in Corinth. Ha. God changed the heart of them Corinthians. Ha. Pulled them out of their immaturity. Ha. Oh, if I had an organist in this place. Paul once more addresses the issue of financial giving in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 through 9 due to a change of heart on behalf of the Corinthians. This is years after he planted the church. And actually what is in your Bibles and my Bibles as 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. Paul wrote three letters to the Corinthians that we know of. The second one was lost. He alludes to it in this what we have as our second letter. He alludes to a middle letter in between the first and the second that was lost. But somewhere in between that first letter he wrote and this letter, what we have as 2 Corinthians in our Bibles, the Corinthians had a change of heart. And so Paul was able to address the subject of financial giving. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. We're going to look at this for a second. The first thing he does is testify about the generosity of the Macedonian churches. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. This is going to blow you away. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, listen to this, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I got to read that again out of the most severe trial, meaning they were going through the worst time of their lives. It was not financially a good time for an offering. Their overflowing joy 
and their extreme poverty. These were not people who were able to give anything. Welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Wait a minute. Hold on. Stop the presses. They pleaded with us, Paul says. That's every pastor's dream. Most churches, the pastors are pleading, please, please, please. This church, Paul walks into this church and they're going, the people are going, please let us give. Please. Paul is thinking these people are much too poor. I can't even ask them for an offering. But they pleaded, please let us give. They pleaded, they pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. What is he talking about? He's talking about the offering to the poor in the Jerusalem church. That he was collecting from church to church. See, Paul would never talk to the churches about supporting himself. He would never say, take an offering from me. He was too afraid that that would be self-serving. Instead, he would tell the people, take an offering for the Jerusalem church. It's only right. You've received their spiritual things. Now you should minister to them your material things. You owe it to them. He would preach that. And so he, but he was very soft on it in Macedonia, which is Philippi. When he's talking about Macedonia, the chief church of the Macedonian churches was the Philippian church. And so they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. They said, please, let us give an offering for the Jerusalem church. But wait, and they did not do as we expected. Stop the presses. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with the Lord's will. You see what he's saying? Not only did they collect an offering for the Jerusalem church, they gave us an offering too. That's not, we didn't even expect that. So are you serious? You mean I don't have to do any more tent making? We didn't expect it. Verse 6. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this grace on your part. What do you mean made a beginning? He says down in verses 10 through 12 that a year earlier, Titus had gone to Corinth and encouraged them to take up an offering for the saints in Jerusalem and they complied. Paul says, when we saw this grace that flowed out of Philippi, we sent Titus to you. We anticipated that God was doing something in the spirit in the churches. And so we sent Titus to you to bring this grace on your part to completion. What does he mean completion? He says, you began by taking an offering for the churches in Jerusalem. We want you to do that, but now complete the work by also collecting an offering for us. Paul is getting a little bold here. He sees this as an opportunity not to get something for himself, but to bring this Corinthian church to the next level in their fellowship. He wants them to be his partners in the gospel, like the Philippian churches. He wants them to experience a greater level of fellowship. 
And then he says in verse 7, But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I want you to go home and just read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 and see what I'm talking about here. He is so bold now that he spends two chapters talking to the, two whole chapters talking to the Corinthians about giving. All right. Conclusion. I'm getting ready to close. <laughs> yeah. To Paul, the fellowship between Gentile churches and the Jerusalem church is created as the Jerusalem church brings the gospel to the Gentiles and the Gentile churches send an offering to Jerusalem. This is the corporate level of fellowship that keeps the church united. But the fellowship between the apostolic teachers who preach the gospel from city to city, establish churches, make disciples, appoint leaders, and govern the churches is established as individuals in each church make financial contributions to the apostles to support their families, their companions, and their tra travels so that they could fulfill the command of Jesus that they take none of their own gold, silver, or copper with them on the journey. Fellowship between the church and its members. Here's how this applies to us. Fellowship between the church and its members is established as the leadership of the church deliver the word and as members receive it and respond with their financial giving to the church. I had a I had to talk with somebody this morning who was, who was, you know, had some questions on this matter. If you're a part of the church, but you're not sowing financially into the church, you're receiving from it, but not giving to it, you will not feel like you're a part of the body. You'll feel disconnected. And it's not because you're not receiving, it's because you're not completing the loop by giving. I want to say this, that giving in the New Testament church was not founded upon the principle or law of tithing. It was founded upon the principle of fellowship. It was the completion of the loop. And that's why in the Jerusalem church, people would come and lay their gifts, their offerings, which went far beyond the tithe. They would lay it at the feet of the apostles. It was a symbolic act that the word had been received and that the people had come into submission to it and that they were sowing into the word that was being spoken. They would come lay it at the feet of the apostles. They didn't have like those chicken buckets that we pass around or them little velvet, you know, those little velvet offering, you know, those little, those little velvet bags. They didn't do that in the early church. They came and laid it at the feet of the apostles while the apostles were teaching. The people would come and lay their offering at their feet. In this way, fellowship is established and a foundation is laid for the cultivation of communion, which occurs when disciples grow up fully into the teaching to which they are entrusted. We've begun to build a house here. This is not the end of it, but this is the beginning of it. This is the start. And I want to encourage you that the word of the Lord to you today is to complete the loop. Complete the loop. If there's any place where you're giving, where you're receiving but not giving, complete the loop. Complete the loop. This is how we establish fellowship and we establish communion. And the Spirit of the Lord is desperate to create communion among us, to create real fellowship among us. The Spirit of the Lord is desperate to bring us into communion and to bring us into the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But He's waiting for us to make the decision we're going to enter into fellowship. We're going to be a fellowship. 
we're going to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Let's pray. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would fall heavy on this house. Lord, as we speak these things and we lay this foundation, I pray that you would give wisdom and revelation and understanding to each and every one of us. You want to bring us into a place of communion with you and with one another. Teach us, Father. Teach us, Father. Teach us, Father. You have called us into the fellowship of your Son, Jesus Christ. And you have called us to be a fellowship. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would enlighten our hearts. Enlighten our minds. That we might respond. That today we would make a decision. I'm going to receive what the Spirit is saying to the church. I'm not just going to be a name on the list in this church. But I'm going to be a partaker. Of the things that have been made available by the Holy Spirit in this house. Secondly, I'm not just going to be a receiver, but I'm going to be a giver. I'm going to complete the loop and establish fellowship in the house. And thirdly, I'm going to reach for communion. Mutual participation in the deep things of the Spirit of God. That's what it means to build the fellowship of the burning heart. Take us into your fellowship into your communion. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We love you and adore you. We give you all the praise and glory, and I speak your blessing over this people today. The blessing of understanding, the blessing of counsel and might, the blessing of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, the blessing of wisdom, May they rest upon you in abundance and even a double portion. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you. We're dismissed.